chapter, attorney chapter of the Federal Society, uh, and we, in conjunction with the uh, UA Law School of Law Students chapter, hosting this event today, we are honored to have with us today Professor John S. Baker, who is going to give his uh, speech entitled, Who is the Commander-in-Chief? Uh, Professor Baker received his uh, law degree from the University of Michigan in 1972. Uh, he is the Dale E. Bennett Professor of Law at LSU, where he teaches constitutional law, criminal law, federal courts, and jurisprudence. Professor Baker has served as a law clerk in the Federal District Court and Assistant District Attorney in New Orleans, and as a consultant to the Justice Department, the U.S. Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Separation of Powers, and the Office of Planning in the White House. Please get, help me give a warm Arkansas welcome to Professor Baker. Thank you, Brian. It's good to be back here. This is my third visit to the Bowen Law School in the last seven years. And today when I arrived, I went over to the Clinton Library. I was looking for kind of inspiration on presidential matters. And not only did I find some inspiration, I found a good deal of hospitality. I walked in unannounced and uh, asked for some assistance. And not only did I get assistance in the library itself, I was doing an interview on a local radio station, KARN, and they set up a room for me over in the School of Public Service where I did that interview and was able to, to work on this address there. They were most kind and I certainly want to acknowledge that. And, uh, one of the centers that they built there. But I did find some inspiration and I asked the guide there to point me to the part of the library that would deal with foreign policy and military affairs, and they did, and there were four sections in the timeline. And the first one I went to was labeled Preparing for New Threats. And there was President Clinton, and this sentence from his address, uh, I want to quote, because it, it goes to the heart of everything. It says, we will defend our security wherever we are threatened. And that's what every president of the United States does, is supposed to do, and what the American people expect of him. Indeed, when it comes to the issue of commander-in-chief, there really aren't Republicans and Democrats in the White House. That is, they're both agreed, both parties are agreed as president, maybe not when they're in the Congress, but when they are in the White House on the importance of this power. No president wants the Congress overstepping its bounds and interfering with the legitimate powers of the executive branch, especially in foreign affairs. But as the framers recognized, the Congress is the constant threat. You know, a lot of times conservatives think that Congress is the bulwark of conservatism. It is not, even under Republicans, as we've seen. Why not? It's an institutional thing. All presidents, at least up through the current president, I think that uh, Clinton was included in this, but certainly President Carter was, they all opposed as unconstitutional the War Powers Resolution passed in the 1970s, which was an attempt by Congress not only to, to exercise its legitimate war-declaring powers, but to go further and to intrude on the president's war-making powers. 
The issue as I'm looking at it today is not just about the commander-in-chief power per se, but what I consider to be the much larger issue. It is the issue of U.S. superpower status. Let me ask you this question, and you may think it a surprising, indeed a bizarre question. Do you expect that the U.S. will continue to be a superpower? Most Americans say, well, of course. Now, I'm not talking about being the only superpower. We'll have China, undoubtedly, before long being a superpower. But I'm talking about remaining a superpower. Because if you don't understand the structure of the Constitution in separation of powers and the unitary executive, you don't realize the dangers that we're dealing with. Outside the U.S., the opinions about the continued status of the U.S. are not at all what they are in the United States. We're all aware that there are groups, namely Al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations, working to dethrone that superpower status. But you may not realize the other groups in the world. There are many throughout Europe who are hoping for a fall in the U.S. superpower status. But probably more telling are those who fear the loss of superpower status in the U.S. Last week, the Wall Street Journal had an article about the Saudis. And in that article were statements about the Saudis' perception that the U.S. was no longer capable, no longer had the willpower to maintain its superpower status in the Mideast. And therefore, they were hedging their bets and were cozying up to other regimes, China, Russia, and others. We live in a very different geopolitical world than the one into which Bill Clinton became president. You may recall that statement by a famous LSU Law School graduate, James Carville, it's the economy, stupid. Well, even President Clinton learned that it is foreign policy that marks the executive branch because that is where the executive has its most powers. So I want to talk about three things. First of all, is to lay down what the basic principles of separation of powers are, in particular with respect to the executive branch. Two, I want to talk about the attacks on the constitutional structure of separation of powers, again, as it particularly relates to the executive branch. And the third point will be on the importance always of resisting congressional attacks and maintaining the power of the executive in foreign affairs and military affairs, because without that, the U.S. cannot be a superpower. On separation of powers, you know, there's a great deal of misunderstanding in the United States about this. Indeed, if you look at civics books in high school, many of them never even mention separation of powers. They mention checks and balances. Checks and balances is subordinate to separation of powers. It's an ingredient of separation of powers. It is not fundamental. For the founders, and by those founders I mean both those for the Constitution and those against it, 
they were agreed on one thing, separation of powers. They all agreed that without separation of powers, there could be no liberty. Now, they disagreed on what separation of powers meant, but they disagreed on that less than they disagreed about other issues, such as federalism. As the Federalist Papers rec uh, recognizes, in a republic like ours, Congress is necessarily, inherently, the strongest branch. They looked around, and in the states they had adopted, in theory, on parchment, on paper, the principle of separation of powers, but their judgment was that it didn't really work. It didn't work because the legislative bodies overran the governors, overran the judicial branch in the states. So their solution was to weaken the Congress and strengthen the other two branches so that in practice, separation of powers will work to protect our liberty. But there's another dimension to the protection of liberty that is largely lost, but we have to focus on it much more than we have in the past. And that is the distinction between the internal protection of liberty and the external protection of liberty. What do I mean? The internal operation of separation of powers is meant to have powers divided so they can check each other. The checking follows from the division of power. There is a kind of a equilibrium that is sought so that the weaker branches are elevated in their power so that they can fend off the Congress when the Congress threatens to override and overrun its territory or its boundaries and inter interfere with the other two branches. The, uh, the, the, the solution that we get in our Constitution is one that is labeled a confederal republic. And in explaining this, the Federalist says this was the solution that the Frenchman Montesquieu recommended as the way to combine smaller republics, we would call them states, and the advantages of a monarchy. Well, what are the advantages of a monarchy, or what were they? An all-powerful state. The problem with an, a monarchy and an all-powerful state as it existed 200 years ago was that it is oppressive to liberty internally. They had, however, to create a nation-state, which we were not under the Articles of Confederation. So think of this in a roundabout way, a circle, as it were, that externally we have a hard shell of sovereignty, and internally we divide sovereignty so that there is no one sovereign. There is no king. Each of the three branches has sovereign power in a limited area. Collectively, they are internally sovereign if you count in as well the states because they have their sovereignty. But externally, the point was that we did not want division of power. That's why until recent cases from the Supreme Court dealing with Guantanamo, federal courts never ventured into the realm of foreign policy and military affairs. It was not their realm. They were internal. They were key to separation of powers and the protection of liberty internally. In the era of the framers, outside the sovereignty of the United States, there was no law except the law of nature. 
And the law of nature could only be tamed by the law of nations. And that was the law only among sovereigns. It was not governed by courts. It was not governed by legislatures. It was state to state from the head of state to state. And that is the structure of our Constitution. And so in order to protect the liberty of the United States, the framers created a strong president, an energetic executive, and those who were opposed to the Constitution were very opposed to the idea of an energetic executive. And we've seen this pattern since. Whenever a nation frees itself from a tyrant, the knee-jerk reaction is to think that what you need to create is a weak executive, one dependent on a legislative body to control the executive. I saw this in Eastern Europe after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Those countries were so fearful of the past that they hampered their future by not structuring their constitutions in a way to make them more effective states. In some of the states, the old KGB types were in effect dominating and the state didn't have sufficient power basically to deal with these groups. So in creating a unitary executive, they knew what they were doing. And to say a unitary executive is to say something very specific. And it's important today because I've seen a number of articles recently in which a newspaper will refer to someone, maybe someone from the Federal Society, and say, that person supports the idea of a unitary executive. Wait a minute. It's not an idea. It is what's in our Constitution. Of course, we have one president. But for some years, there's been a discussion about co-presidencies. There was some discussion of that during the Clinton administration. But there's another way to undermine the executive, as the Federalists said, even when you have only one person as the chief executive. If that person's decisions are not fully his decision, it's one thing to get advice, but if somehow that person is subject to someone else's input, required to submit to a council of advisors, that undermines the unitary executive. The argument in the Federalist is that a unitary executive is absolutely essential to a democratic republic. Why? In a democratic republic, we are going to have all kinds of factions. We would call them special interests. Only a president, because only the president has a national constituency, can tend to bring a national viewpoint. That's important enough in domestic matters, but it is absolutely essential in foreign matters. Without the strength of the executive, we cannot protect the United States by pro projecting our power. That is not to say that they wanted unlimited power in a president. It is to say that they were careful in how they divided the power. They were well aware of history, certainly the change from the Roman Republic to the Roman Empire, and how a general, a Caesar, can seize power. 
And so they again made this distinction, internal versus external. The commander-in-chief does not have commander-in-chief powers within the United States. That, after all, is what the steel seizure case in the Truman administration was all about. And it was correctly decided, without a doubt. But until recently, we understood the difference between internal and external. Externally, the president not only has the power to wage war when Congress declares war or its equivalent, but the president has the duty, without any action of Congress, to defend the country. It's a matter of self-defense. And again, in the past, it used to be more easily determine what was the difference between offense and defense. In this day and age with terrorism, it is difficult to distinguish offense from defense. It is difficult to distinguish between internal and external. But that doesn't mean we don't have to make the effort and draw some kind of distinction. My second point has to do with the attacks on the unitary executive, especially in foreign affairs. It is difficult, as I said, to make these distinctions, but it is impossible unless people are committed to making the distinctions. If we go back historically, the question of securing executive power was one that arose early on. It arose in the Adams administration in 1798. You may have read about this recently in the Wall Street Journal. There's an article about the Logan Act. The Logan Act was passed in 1798 when an American pacifist went to France to talk to the government and tell them that the American people were really for peace. That person was interfering with the power of the executive to conduct foreign policy, and they, the administration asked for a criminal act to outlaw that kind of conduct. And it made it a felony for Americans to communicate with other governments in an effort to influence the conduct of those governments in disputes with the United States. And it was passed, said one of its sponsors, because that kind of conduct is a threat to the executive power. Now, this comes as a surprise to many Americans. We take our First Amendment's free, uh, freedom very seriously, and we think, well, why can't everybody simply speak their mind? Well, it was an easier matter before modern electronic communication, television, and everything else. The electronic media and globalization, we all know, has seemed to melt away borders. But if we forget borders, then we forget sovereignty. And sovereignty is not a fashionable term. I dare say it's rarely, if ever, mentioned in a law school class in constitutional law. In Europe, sovereignty is a bad name. Sovereignty is passé. But we've got a problem in the United States, and it is one that's not new. It's one that's simply getting more serious. Recently, Speaker Pelosi went to Syria, and she was engaging in foreign policy. And I think, as do some others, there was a clear violation of the Logan Act. But I wouldn't single out simply Speaker Pelosi. I have in the past and did in my classes during the Clinton administration single out Speaker Gingrich. 
Well, I don't know that he went as far as Pelosi. I think the general spirit of some of what he did abroad was undermining to the Clinton foreign policy. It is one thing domestically to disagree with the president on foreign policy. It is quite another matter for any American citizen, whether it's a Republican Speaker of the House or a Democratic Speaker of the House, to go abroad and undermine the power of the executive branch because that is undermining the whole country. In the past, this kind of thing would not have happened because of the normal common sense that used to exist in the U.S. Senate. The framers understood and rightly thought that the House should represent the immediate passion and interest of the people. It is deliberately the body closest to the people and it will register their temperature rather accurately. The framers, therefore, in constructing the Senate, thought that sometime the good sense of the American people would, in the short term, maybe make the wrong decision. The Senate was always understood to have the long view in mind. And that's why not only do senators have the length of term that they do, but that's why, in part, they were originally elected not by popular election, but by state legislatures. They were more immune to popular pressures than they are today. When you take popular election and then the advent of television news, which became prominent in the early 60s, you can track the changes in foreign policy and the erosion of executive power in international and military affairs you can track it to basically the decline of the U.S. Senate and its role in supporting the executive. The Federalist talks about the import of the Senate. The import of the Senate is that it is not in sync or not supposed to be in sync necessarily with the House and that because of the fragile nature of the executive and of the judiciary, that the Senate would be the body that brought a sense of long-term long viewpoint and would be, in a way, a support for those other institutions. Unfortunately, it's not working out that way. The third thing that I would talk about in terms of attacks on the unitary executive, there is a lot of discussion about American imperialism and that we have to pay more attention to the opinion of other nations. Well, certainly... The framers looked on the Senate as the body that would pay attention to foreign nation opinion. The framers were very conscious of the need to maintain good relations with other countries. We still need that. And when you get a president, as with President Bush, who's not traveled much, it can be very useful to have the informal advice of members of the Senate. Unfortunately, as we saw today with the reaction of the Senate Majority Leader Reid in terms of his turning down the President's invitation, that kind of relationship has totally broken down and it is not for the good of the country. If you look abroad, especially at France and England, with the exception of Tony Blair, who has stood strongly by the U.S., you find in these countries former great powers. 
France would like to think of itself as still a great power, it certainly is not. Why did it lose its great power status? Well, there may be many reasons, but it certainly coincided with the loss of their colonies. And how did they lose their colonies? Under the anti-imperialist rhetoric of the United States in large part. And so for countries like that, there is a sense of deja vu. They want to launch an argument against the United States that we are imperialistic. The same kind of argument that took away their superpower status. I've already mentioned the Senate, but when you put these things together, you have to realize that there is something still unique about the United States, and I think it was best expressed by Justice Ginsburg, quoting from Chief Justice Rehnquist, and that is that much of the world has looked at the United States and seen two great contributions of the U.S. Constitution. One, a strong judiciary, and the other, a strong executive. That's what I've already described as essential to separation of powers. But as she says, most other countries have accepted the notion of a strong executive, excuse me, a strong judiciary, but have rejected the notion of a strong executive. My third point about the struggle over sovereignty. You know, the nation state is really only about 500 years old. And it arises with a theory and a practice of sovereignty. It really didn't exist before that. And there's nothing that says that the nation state and the modern concept of sovereignty will exist forever. And changes are often tied to technology. The nation state was a centralization of power, and certainly the industrial age assisted that. We are in a new age of electronic technology, which is decentralizing. That's not good news for the idea of the nation state. But we have to realize that even if the nation state generally passes, that doesn't mean there will not be governance in the world. There will be some form of governance. The question is, what form of governance? I suggest two possibilities other than the nation state as we know it in the United States. In Europe, there is this notion of, quote, shared sovereignty. Some years ago, I had a spokesman for the European Union address my class via video conference. He later went on to be the EU ambassador to the UN. And he made the statement that Europeans had learned to share their sovereignty. And he was very confident that Americans would eventually learn that they must do so also. There is a strong sentiment in Europe, indeed around the world, that the one thing that unites them is their determination to bring the United States under control. This is no joke. We had on our faculty as a visiting professor the former Argentine ambassador to the United Nations. He gave an address to our law faculty about two years ago at the time when the UN was considering possible changes in the makeup of the Security Council. And after giving several different plans, he said, 
Really, the only thing that unites people at the UN is their opposition to the United States. That's the only thing. You know, when there is a common enemy, people who are not otherwise allies will ally. I don't know what the natural alliance would be between the president of Iran and Chavez, except their opposition to the United States. In many ways, being in a unipolar world where the United States is the only superpower is in many ways more dangerous than what we left in the Cold War where there were two superpowers. Where there were two superpowers, different nations took one side or the other or they played the middle. But they didn't oppose either one. They weren't big enough to. Nobody out there, no other nation is sufficiently strong to oppose the United States individually. But collectively, given electronic technology, if a terrorist group can bring down the World Trade Center, what can a series of tyrants around the world with oil wealth behind them and using our own technology against us while other nations such as Russia and China play in the background, what can they do? They can do quite a bit. But this idea of shared sovereignty not only exists in Europe, unfortunately exists in the U.S. Supreme Court. In the cases in which the court has cited foreign precedent, the real issue isn't foreign precedent. The real issue is the role of the United States in the global world. Indeed, that's exactly what Justice Breyer said in his interview with uh, Stephanopoulos right after the first controversy uh, erupted over citation of foreign authority. I appeared on a panel where Justice Ginsburg was present, present and we were critiquing her talk. And in her talk, she mentioned that if we did not, meaning the court, did not cite foreign courts, then they would stop paying attention to her court. They want to be a global player. Some in Congress want to be a global player. The problem is, look at the globe. It is bad enough that Europe is in decay that European nations on their own and collectively are incapable of defending themselves, that they have no will individually or collectively, at least in the Western European nations, with the exception of part of England, Tony Blair and others, to defend themselves, and that in 60 years there may be no Europe with Europeans, given the demographic situation. And when you look around the rest of the world, do you find nation states in reality? When you look at Latin America, what do you find? You find weak states. Why do I say weak states when we have people like Chavez? The reason you have Chavez is because you have a weak state. You have strong personalities and weak institutions. And what happens when you have weak states and weak institutions? You either get people like Chavez or even worse, you get gangs. I said that there would always be governance in the world. Indeed, there will be. The question is, what will that form of governance take? Increasingly around the world, 
what you have are failed states in Latin America, in Africa, in much of Asia. In much of Asia, their solution to governance is authoritarianism with economic liberalism. Those are not really nation states in the Western sense. It is a type of hegemony. It is a type of rule that is peculiar to Asia. The, West, the nation state is Western. We don't like to talk sometimes about differences between East and West. They are real. In the West, we invented the nation state. The U.S. has been the most successful nation state. Why? our Constitution. And essential to that Constitution is our particular version of separation of powers, which guaranteed our liberty internally, but gave us the strength through a strong executive, even when we have weak presidents. We have had a strong executive. Give me a strong executive institution with a weak president, and you're safer than a strong president with a weak institution. If Americans don't understand that, if they want to simply hide themselves from the rest of the world, we have to understand that the rest of the world is not necessarily going to leave us alone. Thank you very much. very much, Professor Baker. I think we have a little time for questions. Uh, this session is being recorded. Uh, the audio is being recorded so we can upload it to the Federalist Society website and hopefully also have uh, local radio stations play it as well. So I encourage you, if you have questions, use one of the microphones on either aisle uh, to ask the question so we can get your question as well as Professor Baker's answer. Professor Baker, uh, Philip Oliver, uh, from the, to, to what degree is the problem that we're presently facing one of just extremely heightened partisanship? It, it, that's part of the problem, but it's not peculiar to the Democrats. The Republicans have engaged in it as well in the past. It is, I think, the institutional breakdown of the Senate more than anything else. But would the problem continue? Does the problem exist in situations in which the Congress is not in control of the opposition party? Oh, it would certainly be less. Certainly be less. But it's not designed in such a way that you count on that, and you shouldn't have to count on it. The, the key, the Federalist said, was that there has never been a long-lived republic without a Senate that created a national character. You listen to senators, both of, uh, of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, who served in the past, and they all tell you how the Senate has changed. Now, the seeds of its change were planted long ago with popular election, but until television came into the Senate, 
uh, it was able to preserve much of its function for a long period of time. But, but television has simply uh, changed that. And I'm not suggesting that we change television. We can't. I mean, technology can't be changed. But it, it emphasizes the, the need to understand what the solution was. And if the solution has broken down in part, then we've got to do something to restore it. Otherwise, the, the idea that we can have sustained foreign policy that is sensible, and, and I'm not defining sensible, but one that people make not in a partisan way, that's, that's in serious jeopardy. Um, I've got a couple of questions about the, how you feel about the actual presidency. Um, I think I'm making a, an error in my thought. Are, it seems like you're saying that the executive is not necessarily the president, correct? And I don't know if I can think of an example of a weak president and a strong executive. Could you give, give us an example of that? It, it's, I'm talking about the institution. You can have a strong president, but if the president does not have sufficient power or if that power is interrupted, then no matter how strong he is as a person, he can't effectuate that power. The, the ingredients of a strong executive the Federalist lays out are duration in office, adequate powers, uh, and two other things. Independence, primarily from the uh, legislative body. That independence is critical. Think about Tony Blair. I mean, Blair's performance is remarkable because he stood by us against the majority of his party. In a parliamentary system, the executive is a product of the legislative branch. The legislative branch controls the execution of the law. Our Congress, under both Democrats and Republicans, always wants to control the executive. And the framers said they would always try to do that. That's why they put up these walls to prevent the Congress from overstepping, realizing that you couldn't draw a real clear line. What you had to do was to give to the executive weapons to fend off the Congress. Um, I actually have a number, but I'll wait first. Um, the last one I have right now, do you think it's possible for an energetic president or an active court to be able to become as powerful as Congress, or are we simply hoping to restrain the legislature? It's, it's simply a matter of restraining the legislature. I think anyone who's worked in Washington understands that Congress is the 800-pound grill. Uh, but this, the strength of the president is that the president is one, and the president has a nationwide constituency. When, in 1994, the Republicans took over the Congress, it was the best thing that happened for President Clinton at the time. He had been going down the polls. He started going up in the polls. Why? Because Speaker Gingrich set himself up as an opposition president. He attempted that. But Gingrich didn't represent anything more than one district in Georgia. And the American people rightly reacted against the idea of one person, even the Speaker of the House, challenging the president. That's the point. This really came home to me last year when I was at Fulbright in the Philippines. 
I don't know if you've ever followed it, but almost every year they attempt to impeach the president in the Philippines, or they attempt a coup on, on the date. I was over there, and for a week they said, what day will the coup attempt be? It was ridiculous. One of the reasons, and they thought they were following the U.S. Constitution, they have senators who are elected nationwide. Now, can you imagine that in the U.S., a Hillary Clinton, not just representing New York, but the United States? You would have people with sufficient power in the Congress who had a national constituency that would completely overwhelm the presidency. There is nobody in Congress, not the majority leader of the House, uh, Speaker of the House, not the majority leader of the Senate, who has that position. That, that's where the strength of the president comes in, certainly domestically. And that's why the president, although he doesn't have a legislative power, he has the power of the pulpit if he is able to communicate. And he has the power of being one. And that was essential, giving the presidency the power of one. I think I have, my name is Josh Silverstein. I'm a professor here at the law school. I think I have two concerns. The first is that as a lawyer, I would love to believe that the Constitution is perhaps the single most important reason for why the United States is a superpower. But I think there are numerous other factors involved, including our historic commitment to capitalism, uh, to science, our natural borders, our resources, our, our immigrant population. I think there are numerous different factors that have contributed to our being a superpower. And while the Constitution may be significant, I feel that some subtle changes to our constitutional structure are not going to undercut all of the other forces that have kept us strong. And the second and related point is that I don't see some of the congressional and judicial overreaching right now as being that extreme. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be vigilant. Warnings like yours that, you know, we should think about the encroachment now before it genuinely does become problematic. I think that vigilance is good, but I don't see the, the ruling in the Guantanamo case and even what Nancy Pelosi has been doing as being that significant a, a, a challenge to our executive power. Let me take the second point first. Uh, I teach a course with Justice Scalia on separation of powers. And when you go through a whole series of cases in the 20th century on the side of domestic side, you'll see where, in fact, the executive power, even domestically, has been reduced substantially. Remember that Democrats thought that Scalia was absolutely brilliant in his dissent in Morrison v. Olson when Ken Starr went after Clinton. And they wondered, how could he predict this? Well, he told you that all he was doing was following the structure of the Constitution and that it was in human nature. Republicans complained about the prosecution of Ollie North. Democrats complained about the prosecution of Bill Clinton. The answer to both of them is, if you give excessive power to a good lawyer, what else would you expect? The same thing in either case. You know, it's the abuse of power by both of them. But who gave them the abuse of power? It was Congress. 
Why did Congress give them that abuse of power? Because Congress did not want to be accountable for impeachment. That is, Congress has the power to go after the president. But the system is set up that Congress, if it does so, has to be accountable. And if you study Congress enough, you'll realize that what it is most engaged in is taking power and credit without responsibility. Exactly as Federalist 48 says it would do. I mean, it, it is in case after case. This is not something new. What's new is in the foreign affairs power. Secondly, back on the um, lawyer constitution and all these other factors, I agree with you that all of those factors greatly contribute to the United States and our, our wealth and power, um, our geographic position, our size, all of that. But before the Constitution, we were a third world basket case. And there's the only difference between where we were before the Constitution and after it is the Constitution. One. Two, I go into high schools and I ask, I ask students, I say, why is it the United States is such a powerful country? And the students come back and say, American students come back and say, we're Americans. And I go into places that have often a large Asian population, and you should see the reaction on the Asian faces. And I say, well, wait a minute. We're a nation of immigrants. How is it that all of these wonderful immigrants couldn't do well in their own countries, but they do well in our country? They're the same people. They came here, and all of a sudden it's different. Law shapes a culture. Different cultures are shaped by different forces, but ours is unique. Most cultures are shaped by an ethnic and a religious and a cultural base. We had an Anglo base to begin with, which is over time eroded. What shapes us is fundamentally our constitutional system. If, as a lawyer, you think of the Constitution, as many lawyers do, as a written document, then yes, you might think that this is an odd way to look at it. If you think of the Constitution the way the framers understood it as an institution, the way I teach it is, think of this building as an institution. The Constitution creates walls. It creates pathways. It makes all of these other things possible. It creates a system that allows for immigration, movement from state to state, the creation of wealth, the taxation that funnels the wealth into Washington. The genius of the Constitution is that you create a kind of strange executive in that he is extremely powerful without limit within a narrow category. It's not power of breadth, it's power of depth. The, the depth and the narrowness is what protects us. So the president, in some ways, is stronger, more powerful than any ruler in history. The Bush administration is necessary considering the changes you spoke about with the House and Senate role. Well, the, the problem with <laughs> what we need to get back at looking is the size of bills. Madison 
made an addition into the text of the Constitution in anticipation that members of Congress would do an end run on the veto, realizing that they would try to distinguish between laws and resolutions to avoid veto. Our difficulty today is that, there, that what the president gets in the way of a bill is not a bill. It, it is everything in there. And again, a lot of this is due to the change in the Senate. Ideally, what the president should do better than a signing statement is to veto all these things and make them come up with bills. Uh, that would shut down the government, and we'd have a standoff. Uh, Clinton was able to stand off and beat Gingrich. I don't know whether, I certainly as a communicator, George Bush is not capable of doing that. Ronald Reagan came close to doing it when he actually, the State of the Union, took a copy of the bill and showed it, and showed how ridiculous it was for him to simply put a single signature on it. And that was the genesis behind the line item veto. I would prefer to see a line item veto. In absence of that, the president is in charge of executing the laws. The president takes an oath to defend the Constitution, as does the court, as does the members of the Congress. Does the president have to defend laws that he believes to be unconstitutional? I don't think so. And that's what the issue is. Is the president always the lawyer for the Congress? Does he have to defend everything that goes through? Hi, Professor. I'm Matt Black. Um, I'm a student here. I'm trying to figure out the difference between the American, the views of the American people when Clinton sent troops to uh, Bosnia as a peacekeeping force and the way that uh, the opposition to the war in Iraq is now. Um, is it just a matter of lives lost or what exactly is happening? I remember hearing Dick Morris on television say that President Clinton was hesitant in his response in Kosovo because of the criticism coming from Republicans, conservatives, because at that time there was the movie out, Wag the Dog. Um, I think that, that some of the Republican criticism was irresponsible. Whether Clinton was aggressive enough or not, I leave to those who are who are experts in, in those matters. I'm not an expert in what happened over there. A lot of it simply has to do with with the media, you know, where the coverage is, but it also has to do with the ability of the president to communicate. Certainly, President Clinton was a much better communicator than George Bush. So, you know, it's a dynamic situation, and there there are various factors involved. But Clinton was afraid of body bags, apparently. And that's what you're getting. You're seeing all this death and blood, and the American people are reacting to that. And if, if you actually analyzed it, and you ask yourself, well, how many people are killed every year on the highways? And do we start driving automobiles? But there's no one cause for all those deaths on the highway. 
People have to be convinced that all of these deaths are worth it. That's what it comes down to. And the president has not been successful enough in maintaining that case. And in part, it's a reaction to what happened after 9-11. The Senate didn't fully do its job as it would have in the past. You can expect that the House would have been stampeded by 9-11. The Senate should not have been as stampeded. I don't mean they shouldn't have gone along, but there, there were certain things that the Congress did and passed in the Patriot Act and these other things <clears throat> that didn't necessarily have to be passed then, that could have undergone more scrutiny. But given the reality of the situation, the executive branch took advantage of the situation and ran things through. Now, in many ways, that's coming back to haunt the executive, the president. But again, we don't have the balance that we're supposed to have there. And again, I point to the Senate as being the, the failure to balance things. Hi, my name is Matthew Glover. I'm a 2L here. The advertisement for your talk um, seemed to indicate that you're going to speak a, a decent bit about the present war in Iraq and, and Congress's um, most recent efforts to you know, try to tie in such things as a time, time for withdrawal to troop spending to funding for the war and, and how that um, may conflict with the executive authority to conduct a war. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about where it's an unpopular war overall, it seems to me, and the most recent election, although not solely about the war, the public sentiment clearly seems to be going against the war and Democrats in the, leg in the legislative branch make the argument, well, we're only going along with what the voice of the people is with regards to this unpopular war. And the president's rightly you know, comes back by saying, well, I'm the executive and the commander-in-chief, and I've got to conduct the war as I see fit. So where do those two uh, roads converge? Well, I thought that I was putting it in, in a framework to understand those particular questions. The problem with so much of politics and why it is partisan is because very few people engaged in the discussion have any idea of the framework. There isn't a constitutional background to political discussion anymore. There used to be 40 years ago, but it's, it's been totally lost. And if you don't step back and look at the institution, then it becomes more partisan. And by looking at the institution and looking at both Clinton and Bush, rather than simply saying it's the Democrats and Bush against Bush, I think it, it is in a framework that people can begin to understand it's not just a partisan question. In terms of people not liking the war, yes, nobody likes war. And all of the things I've said, I think, go to explaining why the president has not been more successful in continuing to convince people on the necessity. They've not really made the case. But on the other hand, it's extremely frustrating, I'm sure, to having succeeded in preventing an attack 
domestically since 9-11 and not getting credit for it and people thinking well where's the problem you know success may be its own undoing in this case thank goodness there hasn't been anything else but I guarantee you if there had been three or four other incidents since 9-11 and the president was acting the way he's acting people would be convinced of the need of it right now they're not convinced of the need of it and I think that goes to the essence of it they say why are these people dying and if you can't explain to the American people why people are dying they won't support it and that is the case the president's got to make but again if he is constantly being undermined in making the case not just by the house you can count on the house doing it but if the senate is going to be behave the way it's behaving now now in a way that's simply not responsible if the senate wants to go along with the house they can exercise their constitutional power to cut off funds. They want it both ways. They want to support the troops with funds but end the war. Everybody who runs for popular election wants to satisfy everybody. That was the advantage of the former Senate when they didn't have to satisfy everybody. They had to satisfy their state legislature. But that's a different body. It had its problems. It had its corruption. But at least they understood what governance was about. Unfortunately, many Americans simply don't understand governance today. And we can lay the blame for that in our educational system. You know, how many people are really well informed? Not many. You know, that's why the Federalist Society does what it does. We try to have people engage in discussion about the Constitution and its importance. I want to thank Professor Baker for being here today. I know he's traveled to, to come see us from Louisiana and we certainly appreciate you again, Professor Baker. I want to invite all of you to a reception in the Dean's Gallery on the second floor. I hope all of you can attend, and we look forward to seeing you at future Federal Society events. Thank you very much.